Bible scholar and author J.I. Packer once said, the stars may fall, but God's promises will stand and be fulfilled. Our God always does what he says he will do. Always. In fact, if you've ever been disappointed because something you were sure God was going to do in your life didn't actually happen, well, it's not because God didn't do his part. Because God always does his part. Maybe not how we want him to, of course, or, uh, or when we want him to, but God always does what he says he will do. So the question we need to ask ourselves when things aren't going the way we want them to or thought they would isn't really whether or not God is doing his part, but rather, am I doing my part? Because the fact is, most of God's promises involve us doing our part, right? God told Moses he would lead the Israelites out of Egypt. But when they got to the Red Sea, an impassable barrier between Pharaoh and his army, Moses had a part to play in getting the people across that body of water, right? With Pharaoh's army bearing down on them and the Israelites bearing down on Moses, he had to turn his back on every immediate urgent need and all the other voices trying to tell him what to do and walk out to that water in faith, stretching out his staff, believing that God would do what he said he would. And as Moses did his part, the promise was fulfilled. God told Joshua that he would lead the Israelites into the promised land. But Joshua still had to march around the walls, the impenetrable walls of Jericho, before God fulfilled the promise by supernaturally bringing those walls down. Right? David was anointed to be king of Israel, but he still had to go out onto the battlefield and face the giant Goliath in battle. He still had to prove himself faithful to honor Saul, even when Saul was trying to kill him fact is David had to learn to live and act like a king long before he ever became one. Okay, in every instance, God did his part. But the one to whom the promise was given always had to do their part as well. He said to his people in 2 Chronicles 7, 14, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. There's a promise for God's people there, but notice it's preceded by an if. If you do your part, God says, I'm always faithful to do mine. And just to be clear, it's not our faithfulness that makes God faithful. You know that, right? He is who he is. And our experience of him, whether meeting with our approval or not, right? Whatever it is you think about God, those feelings do not alter who he is in any way, shape, or form. Deuteronomy 7, 9, Moses says, The Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. In other words, God keeps his promises distinctly because that's who he is. A covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God. And our faithfulness in believing that, or a lack of it, has no bearing whatsoever on the truthfulness of that statement. God is God. And so look, our hope, our faith, our trust, our confidence, and likewise, our hopelessness, our doubt, our distrust, and our uncertainty, all of those things may have a great effect on who we are, but they have absolutely no effect on who God is. So our confidence in Him isn't what makes him worthy of our confidence. 
Our faith in him is not what makes him faithful. Our trust in him is not what makes him trustworthy. And our hope in him is not what guarantees the hope that we have in him. That's why the Apostle Paul said, all the promises of God find their yes in him, not in us. 2 Corinthians 1.20, because all of God's promises for us are fulfilled in Christ. The point is, God always finishes what he starts. He makes good on every single promise, every single commitment, and every single plan he's ever established in your life. God always finishes what he started, which also means the good work that he started in you the day you gave your heart and life to Christ. He's going to finish that good work in your life. So you don't ever have to wonder if God will complete the work that he began in you because he absolutely will. The Apostle Paul said, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.6. Okay, the foundation for your spiritual progress in this life is ultimately rooted in what God has done, is doing, and will do in your future because God always finishes what he started. But listen. How that progress unfolds in your life largely depends on you finishing what you started. Okay, again, Deuteronomy 7, 9, the Lord your God is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love. With who? With those who love him and keep his commandments. Okay, God is always going to do his part. He will always finish what he started. The question is, will you? Will you finish what you started the day you gave your heart and life to Christ? And here's why that question is so important. Because your life on this earth was never meant to be second place to your life in heaven. You get that, right? When God created the earth and all of us, it was meant to be the dwelling place of mankind with God. And of course, we messed that up. And yet, because God so loved the world and he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life with God. How? By way of his Holy Spirit in us. That is his gift to us. And through that gift, the moment the Holy Spirit came to dwell inside of his people, the kingdom of heaven on earth in that moment was restored. You understand this world isn't just a place where we're trying to hang on by the skin of our teeth until we all get to heaven. No, this is God finishing what he started through you and me. And one day, according to the revelation, he's going to remake this world for us to dwell in it with him forever. Right? If anything, heaven is the temporary holding place. This is where he intended for us to be with him forever. So, so don't think of this world as a bad place that you have to endure until we all get to heaven. Because as long as you do your part, as long as you finish what you started the day you gave your heart and life to him, you will experience in your own life his kingdom come, his will being done on earth as it is in heaven through you. That's his promise to you. And that's exactly what we see happening in this story today as we continue to work our way through 1 Samuel, where David has been living most of his life with the uh, promise from God that is yet to be fulfilled. And it hasn't been easy. In fact, it's been anything but easy, as most of the time he's been uh, either running for his life from Saul or living among his sworn enemies, the Philistines. And yet, as we'll see today, David finally finishes what he started, or more specifically, what God started in his life, 
which triggers, uh, it triggers the fulfillment of God's promise in David's life to becoming the next king of Israel. So let's pick the story back up where we left off and see what we can learn from David about the importance of finishing what you started when it comes to seeing the promises of God fulfilled in your own life. So 1 Samuel 30, where we left off at verse 16, and we'll read through verse 20. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped except 400 young men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him and said, This is David's spoil. So just some backstory here to set the scene in case you weren't here last time. From the first half of this chapter, David was summoned to bring all of his men and go out to war with the Philistines, among whom he'd been living for some time now. And yet before the battle begins, the five Philistine lords from the five Philistine city-states, they all go to the king and reject the idea of David going out to war with them because they don't trust him not to turn on them in the heat of battle because, of course, they were getting ready to fight the Israelites, David's own people. So they wisely uh, have the king dismiss David and his men and send them back home. And when they get home to Ziklag, they find their city burned to the ground and all their belongings and herds of animals and wives and children, everything is gone. Because while they were away, the most bitter enemies of the Israelites and of David, the Amalekites, knowing that David and his men were off to war, they raid David's city while they're gone, burning it down and making off with their possessions and their families. So that's where the story picks up here with David and his men. He had a 600-man army, less 200 of them now, because 200, as we saw before, were too exhausted to continue the pursuit of the Amalekites. So David takes his 400 men that he has left, finding the much larger Amalekite army, celebrating their great victory over David and his city. And as we just read during their big celebration, David and his men move in and wipe the Amalekites out and drive what's left out of the land. This was a total and complete victory over the Amalekites, where David and his men not only defeat the enemy, but they also recover everything that they'd lost, and yet it's much bigger than that. In fact, this victory has profound implications for David and his men, and in fact, all of Israel, because David had just finished something that no leader before him was willing to, despite the fact that it was started over 400 years earlier when God said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven, Exodus 17, 14. And yet through the leadership of Moses and Joshua all the way up through Saul, the Amalekites were often at war with Israel, but never fully defeated, never completely driven from the land, the results of which were catastrophic. In Saul's reign, as king alone, his failure to exterminate the Amalekites cost him the throne. Maybe you remember, if you were here all the way back in chapter 15, after doing battle with the Amalekites, where he was specifically instructed to put them under carom. It's the Hebrew term that means total annihilation according to the law. And according to God, Saul refused to do that, keeping their king, the Amalekite king, and some of the people alive, 
not utterly destroying their city. So God sends the great prophet Samuel to confront Saul. And in verses 18 and 19 of that chapter, he says to Saul, the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners. That's, that's Karim. Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, to fight against them until they're consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Verse 28, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you to this day and has given it to your neighbor, a neighbor of yours, that's a reference to David, who's better than you. Verse 35, and the Lord regretted that he'd made Saul king over Israel. All of that because Saul refused to finish what he started. So along comes David, who just before pursuing the Amalekites in verse 8 of this story here today, he asked the Lord, shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? And he answered him, pursue, for you shall surely overtake and you shall surely rescue. And for the first time regarding the Amalekites, a leader of Israel finishes the job. And as a result, not only are the Amalekites wiped out and what's left are driven away, but listen, the next time we find David in battle, it's not as a fugitive running from Saul. It's as a king, the king of Judah. And then just a few chapters later, he's anointed king over all of Israel, okay? Exactly what tore the kingdom away from Saul and handed it to David was David simply finishing what no one else would. God made a promise hundreds of years earlier through Moses to erase the Amalekites from the land. And a big part of the reason it took over 400 years to see that promise fulfilled is because no one before David was willing to do their part to finish what had been started. And yet the moment David did what no one else was willing to do, his life and all of that of Israel was changed forever. Okay? In every single one of God's promises for your life, there is a part for you to play. And although he will fight for you every step of the way, of course he will. And although the outcome is ultimately up to him, you still have to get in the fight. You have to face the seemingly impassable obstacles in your life, the impenetrable walls between you and what he's promised you, the giants that try and defeat you along the way because God wants you in the fight. Why? To finish what he started in your life. The apostle Paul said, I've fought the good fight. I've what? finished the race, 2 Timothy 4, 7. Okay, when God calls you to fight, it's not enough to just get in the fight. Like Paul, you have to finish the fight. Okay, if you, if you get in the fight, finish the fight. And look, it's the Bible that uses all of this battlefield imagery throughout to describe our earthly lives as Christians, right? Putting on the whole armor of God, uh, fighting the good fight. The battle is the Lord's, right? We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, and on and on and on the Bible goes. We've been called out to battle by God. A spiritual battle, and that's what... Uh, think about the greatest hope of any enemy against you in battle. What's your enemy's greatest hope in a battle? That you will surrender. Listen, the last thing the enemy wants is for you to finish the fight because God has already guaranteed the outcome for you as long as you do your part, as long as you don't quit, give up, walk away, surrender to the enemy, then you're guaranteed to win. And listen, the enemy knows that. 
So look, you understand, your enemy's not trying to beat you in a fair fight because he knows he can't. No, he's simply trying to intimidate you until you quit fighting on your own because the only person who can defeat you in the spiritual battle you've been called to is you. The devil not only has no authority over you, but God has already guaranteed your victory as long as you don't quit fighting. Okay, the one thing God has never called anyone to do is quit. That's right. The only thing God has never called anyone to do is quit. No, he calls us to get in the fight and stay in the fight until the fight is done to finish what we've started. So look, when the heat gets turned up, don't give up. When the battle seems uncertain, don't run away. When it looks like all is lost, you just keep fighting, keep pushing, keep pursuing the promise. And I'm telling you, God will see you through all the way until you finish the fight because the enemy cannot beat you as long as you don't stop fighting. Can you imagine being David and coming home to find everything you know and loved either destroyed or gone? Knowing the sheer size of the Amalekite army. Knowing the fact that his own men want to stone him to death. Knowing that a third of his own army were too tired to go with him. Knowing the odds against him and that he'd be facing impassable obstacles, impenetrable defenses, and a giant army when he got there. David kept on fighting anyway because although he knew everything that was against him, listen, he also knew the one who was with him. The one who was going before him, the one who was going behind him, the one who was going beside him, the one who would not allow David to be defeated as long as David didn't give up and quit fighting. Now listen, this book is full of promises for your life. And all along the way, you're going to have to fight some battles in order to see those promises fulfilled. And yet as hard as some of those battles will be, your victory is guaranteed as long as you stay in the fight and let God take care of the outcome. Toby Mack said, God is up to something or the devil wouldn't be fighting you this hard. <laughs> You're going to win. Let's keep reading verses 21 through 25. Then David came to the 200 men who had been too exhausted to follow David and who had been left at the brook Bezor. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. When David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we've recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He's preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. So on their way back home, after decimating the Amalekites and taking back not only all of their own families and belongings, but all of the Amalekites' belongings as well, which means there's not only enough for all of them, but there's plenty of extra to go around. Remember, this was a massive army. So some of David's men do what probably some of us would do today. They decide that since they were the only ones who went after the enemy, 
Since they stayed in the fight while the others stayed by a nice stream until the battle was over, they decided that only the men who went into battle should get a share of the spoils of war. And of course, that only seems fair to us. The problem for David was he had long since committed himself to this band of ruffians and miscreants, right? These were outcasts of society when David found them, and apparently some of them hadn't changed much. Nonetheless, David made a commitment to them, to all of them, which wasn't based, listen, his commitment to them was not based on their commitment to him, right? It's obvious by the first part of this chapter when they all wanted to stone him to death, yet David remains committed to them. So David intervenes and issues a statute and ordinance regarding the distribution of plunder that was to be followed uh, by Israelite armies for centuries thereafter, literally from that day to this. Because David's sense of justice, listen, it wasn't based on what others had done for him. David's sense of justice was based on what God had done for him. David's mercy and generosity reflected the mercy and generosity of God in his own life, not the mercy and generosity of the other people in his life. Was that fair? No. Listen, David's mercy and generosity here, it wasn't fair to David or to the men who went to the battle with him. But listen, when you make a commitment, what's fair has nothing to do with it. Okay, if you make a commitment, stay committed, whether it's fair or not. Right? Jesus made a commitment to you and to me, and he honored that commitment, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't fair. Just think about it. Jesus, the only perfect and truly blameless man to ever walk the earth, being crucified on a cross for your sins and my sins. That wasn't fair. But his commitment to us isn't based on our commitment to him. Right? His faithfulness is not dependent on our faithfulness. No, David's commitment to his men at times was anything but fair to David. But David's commitment to those men was based on God's commitment to David, not their commitment to David. You're getting the picture. Your commitment to others is supposed to be based on God's commitment to you, not their commitment to you. When you're raising children... You've committed yourself to guiding, protecting, nurturing, and providing for them, right? And of course, of course, they have a part to play in all of that. How they choose to respond to that guidance and protection and nurturing and provision will have a profound effect on the quality of their lives. But listen, regardless of their response to all of that, you're still committed to raising them, right? Whether they respond to you the way you want them to or not, you still raise them. Why? Because you love them more than anything. And so your commitment to them isn't based on their commitment to you. Is that fair? Of course it's not fair. But when you love someone that much, fair has nothing to do with it. Listen, when you got married, you made a commitment to love and protect and cherish and provide for that other person. And anyone who's been married for more than a week knows that at times what you put into a marriage isn't fair, right? One way or the other, based on needs and circumstances and abilities and what you put into that marriage on any given day ebbs and flows both directions, which means what you're putting in and what you're getting out may not always be fair. But when you love someone that much, who cares if it's fair? By the way, I'm not talking about 
abusive relationships, okay? Sometimes when there's real abuse, what is right is to walk away from that relationship. I'm talking about the nature of commitments between people who love each other. They're not always going to be fair all the time. Sometimes you'll, you'll put in more and sometimes less, depending on all sorts of things that happen throughout your lives. And that's okay. Because love is greater than fairness. And thank God it is because what he has done for us and continues to do for us will never be fair. But guess what? God is actually okay with the fact that his ongoing relationship with you isn't fair. You know why? Because he loves you more than anything. That's why he's chosen to keep his commitment to you, fair or not. And that's why when you make a commitment to someone else, you have to stay committed, not because of what that other person can do for you, but because of what Jesus Christ has already done for you. Yet, it baffles me because it's become commonplace among professing Christians today to walk away from commitments they've made to other people, to marriages and families and their churches and on and on. And yet they'll tell me, hey, I'm good with God. I have a relationship with Jesus Christ. So I'm good as far as that goes. I just can't be with this other person any longer. As if the two, your relationship with Jesus and your relationship with other people are somehow totally unrelated. Jesus said, as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. Matthew 25, 40. Listen, don't tell me you're good with Jesus when you treat your wife like she's your last priority. Let me be clear, if that's you, you are not right with Jesus. If you can't keep your commitments to your wife or to your husband or your kids, or your mother, or your father, or your brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of how unfair things might be at any given moment in time, then your relationship with Jesus is not okay. Because your commitments are supposed to be rooted in his commitment to you, not that other person's commitment to you. So whether it's your marriage, your family, your friendships, your church, whatever the relationships are that you've committed yourself to, stay true to those commitments and regardless, listen to me, regardless of whether or not they stay committed to you the way you want them to or think they should, if you will keep your commitments to others based on God's commitment to you, you will experience the fulfillment of His promises in your life in ways you never have before. It's a fact because then you're doing your part. Abraham Lincoln once said, commitment is what transforms a promise into a reality. Let's finish our story for today. Verse 26 to the end of the chapter. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, here's a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth, of the Negev, in Jetire, in Aror, in Sifmoth, in Eshtemoah, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jeremielites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Hormah, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men roamed. So David not only shares all the spoils of war with the 200 men who did not go down with him to fight the Amalekites, but he spreads the wealth around to a host of Israelite cities in the south of Judah. 
And make no mistake about it, these weren't just kind gestures from David. No, these were the actions of a king. And he knew it. First of all, this final battle against the Amalekites, again, was not simply vengeance for burned houses and displaced families. Rather, these were acts of spiritual obedience. It was the fulfillment of ancient Torah mandates and timeless prophecies, as we've already seen. This was a promise fulfilled through David doing his part. Right? This is David being the king that Israel was promised from long ago. And so like a king, he shares much of what he'd won in battle with several significant cities in Israelite society. And the fact that three of those sites were associated with Levites was David offering his tithe to the Lord, as any king of Israel should. And so even before David becomes a king, he acts like a king. Why? Because David was called by God to be a king. This was David simply honoring the calling of God on his life even before that calling was recognized by other people. Okay, if you answer your calling, honor your calling. Whether other people recognize it or affirm it or not, the people of Israel by and large did little to nothing to help David in his most difficult times, running for his life from Saul. In fact, there were entire cities who turned against him and continually reported David's hideouts to Saul so that Saul could track David down and kill him. But David was called to be their king. So he acted like a king, even when no one acknowledged it, okay? There are going to be times in your life when other people will, will not acknowledge the call of God in your life. That doesn't make you any less called by God. Right? If God calls you to something, then honor that calling, even if no one else will. Right? No one, not one single person recognized who Jesus was or what he was called to do when he began his ministry on earth. Truth be told, most of them didn't recognize it at the end of his ministry on earth either. But that didn't keep him from answering the calling on his life. He never tried to live up to the expectations of those around him. Rather, he lived according to the expectations of the one who called him. And of course, they hated him for it. Right? David didn't try to live up to the expectations of Saul or those loyal to Saul or even to David's own men at times. No, he chose to live according to the expectations of the one who called him to be a king, which is why Saul and those loyal to him and even at times some of his own men hated him for it. Okay, there are times when those around you, Sometimes even those close to you, maybe even uh, uh, those who are closest to you won't recognize the calling of God on your life. Listen, that doesn't make you any less called. Even when you, honor, uh, when you honor that calling, there are always going to be those who resent you for it. Some will stand against you for it and some may even hate you for it. Jesus said, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you, John 15, 19. That's one of the realities. It's a part of the cost of answering the calling of God on your life. But listen, if you want to see the promises of God fulfilled in your life, then you have to honor that calling. You have to do your part. It's what God wants from you, and it's what this world needs from you. So whatever He's called you to do, to be, act like it. Do your part, even if no one else recognizes or acknowledges it in your life. And here's what will happen. 
God will fulfill promises in your life in ways you never expected because people who were never on your radar to begin with will respond to your ministry even when others don't. When Jesus, think about it, when Jesus, the the Son of the living God, comes to earth, if anybody was going to recognize who he was and what he'd come to do, surely it would have been the leaders of the church the most devout, religious, studied experts on the Messiah in all of Israel, and all of the world. But they didn't. They completely missed it. So what did Jesus do? Instead, he built his church on the backs of prostitutes, murderers, and thieves. So don't you worry about the people who refuse to acknowledge the calling of God on your life because he will lead you to those who will. And as you honor that calling, as you do your part, you will see the promises of God fulfilled through you in ways and in people who were never on your radar to begin with. That's what God wants from you. And that's what this world needs from you. David acted like a king. He honored his calling even when no one else acknowledged it. And the result was he became the greatest king in Israel's history with countless promises of God fulfilled through David and his reign, all because he honored his calling long before anyone else would. In spite of all that he'd been through, being falsely accused, driven from his wife and from his home, being hunted like an animal, living in caves in the wilderness, even at times rejected by his own people, his own army. David was determined to finish what he started, to become the king he was called to be, to honor his calling by staying committed to those God had called him to, never giving up, never quitting, even when it meant he had to fight for it. David was determined to finish what he started, The question is, are you? Are you willing to not only get in the fight, but to finish it? To fight for the ones you love, to fight for the people he's called you to, the people who need you to do what you've been called to do. Will you finish what you've started? Will you stay committed to each other even when it doesn't seem fair? When you're giving more than you're getting, will you keep your commitments even if at times it seems like you're the only one who's truly committed? Will you finish what you started? Will you honor His calling on your life even when it costs you? Because there are human souls literally hanging in the balance between heaven and hell, waiting for you to be the man or the woman he's called you to be. Will you finish what you've started? Will you do your part? Will you finish what you started the day you gave your heart and life? to Jesus Christ, because I'm telling you the promises that he has for you and those he's put in your life may well depend on it. Let's pray.